singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show will be Stephen Kotler. Stephen is most recently the co-author of a very interesting book called Abundance, which he wrote together with Peter Diamandis. So, without further ado, hi Stephen and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hi Nicola, how are you? Very well, very well, thank you, and I'm incredibly happy that you managed to fit us into your uh, busy um, daily routine. Now, I think you're running a a, a dog sanctuary there, so uh, we might have uh, a lot of fun doing this interview, Uh, and perhaps uh, one of the first questions should be, can you tell us a little bit about the dog sanctuary, and I, I saw already a bunch of dogs around you. Yeah, I think there's about, I don't know, nine or ten somewhere somewhere in my office right now. Um, six years ago, my wife and I co-founded the Rancho de Chihuahua Dog Sanctuary in, in northern New Mexico. We specialize in special needs dogs and, and hospice cases. We kind of like to work with the worst of the worst, the kind of the, the last stop on, on the train of misery, as we say. Um, but uh, I think we're the, one of the only sanctuaries in America that has a, a healing methodology based on cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary psychology. We, we do it things a little differently here, but it's, but it's super interesting and super fun. Now, uh, I have to go back a little bit and say that I just did a great uh, disfavor to, to Stephen because I greatly shortened his personal bio. And perhaps uh, it's, it's time to remedy that uh, by starting a little bit further back in time with your own personal story. So, Stephen, how did you become a writer to begin with? When did your interest in writing develop? Oh, my mother taught me to read. I was writing poetry by four. That's all I ever wanted to do. All I've ever done is put words together in a straight line. Never really had another job. So, so you've always been a writer? I came, out of, I came out of graduate school. I was a bartender through college. and through. I was a magician from the time I was 11 to the time I was 21. The professional magic, prestidigitation, birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and that kind of stuff uh, until I learned how to bartend, bartended my way through grad school and came out of grad school and all I wanted to do was write books and I had to figure out how, you know, I, I knew it was going to take me a while until I was going to get paid to write books and I was trying to get a job in advertising and nobody was going to hire me because I had long dreadlocks and I looked really strange and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, this was the, the you know this was the eighties when, when advertising agencies like double breasted suits and they wanted to look like Wall Street. Nobody was going to hire this weird looking guy with dreadlocks. And uh, I was in an interview and the guy I was interviewing had to go to a meeting and he threw a copy of a magazine called Bikini in my lap. It was the inaugural issue, it was the first issue, and Bikini was uh, the precursor to Maxim or Loaded or FHM or all those magazines that came out a lot earlier in LA. And this was the debut issue. And I was sitting in this guy's office reading this thing and I read an article and I went, I can do this. And I stole his magazine and I went home and I called the editor-in-chief every hour on the hour for four days straight until he took my call. And then I faxed him. I'd, I'd never written a magazine article in my life, so I, he got my college term papers. He got, you know, I think the first half of my novel. Anything I could fax this guy, I faxed him. And, you know, he called me up later and he said, well, you got chutzpah. He, um, Noe Gold was his name. 
And uh, he said, but I don't think I have any work for you. And uh, that was the end of that. And two days later, he called me back. He went, oh, no, I think I do have an assignment for you. And they wanted it was a story about a kid who was going to jail on Monday. And it was Friday. And if I could get the story before he went to jail, I had a job. So I got the story. And uh, that was that was that was it snowballed from there. Once, you know, once somebody paid me to write, I wasn't going to let go. Okay, and, and then you found yourself writing for Maxim? Oh, I, I, I've written, I think, for probably 70 different publications at this point. Um, I've written, I helped start Maxim, I helped start FHM. Uh, I was on staff at GQ. I worked for Variety for a long time. Uh, I, I was in Wired very, very early on, and did a lot of stuff along the way. I was in San Francisco at the start of the Internet Revolution, so I worked on one of the first online magazines and things like that. So I was a little bit a part of that scene. And I, you know, kind of gone from there. That's totally fascinating. So you've been involved in in all those publications, but but let me go a little back again. Like, what did you take in grad school, or in school in general, in university, and then in yeah, grad school? My undergraduate degree is in English and creative writing, and my master's is in creative writing. Oh, I see. So that's exactly on your topic. So as you said before, you've been wanting to be a, a writer all your life. So I guess it makes total sense that you would go and study creative writing, for example. Yeah, and, and then what happened after getting involved in Maxim and all those? Uh, how did you write your first book and what was that all about? Uh, my first novel is, uh, it was a novel, and uh, it, uh, my, it's about four people trying to break into the Vatican to steal a, a book that was uh, a, a, a book about Kabbalistic mysticism that was stolen from the Jews in the 13th century. So the first book is about Kabbalistic mysticism and the consequences of mystical questing in a contemporary society. Things along those lines. I was very, I've, I've always been very deeply interested in philosophy and religion and spirituality and the ideas that circle around that. Um, and so I, you know, the, the first book was a, was a novel that deep dove right into that. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's very interesting. And then and then, how does the story go on so that you get involved with uh, Singularity University, Peter Diamandis? Well, I, yeah, yeah. So, that's a fun story, by the way. Uh, this was in 1987. I was in the Black Rock Desert. I was doing a rocket sign. No, I was doing a story for GQ magazine on Craig Breedlove, who was trying to drive the speed of sound in a car, and he was Craig Breedlove was competing against kind of basically the British Navy, right? It was like a guy in his garage with a handful of mechanics versus the British Navy. And Breedlove was doing okay. And his head mechanic was a guy named Dejer Molnar, who was one of the craziest, most interesting engineers I've ever, guys I've ever met in my life. And he was just a maverick engineer. And I, we were drinking in the bar one night um, in Gerlach, this little tiny town. And I said, Farah, we're on the air. <laughs> um, and, I, and I said, okay, so what's the craziest... Yeah, I said, you're one of the craziest guys I've ever met. What's the craziest thing you know of? He said, oh, there's this guy named Peter Diamandis who wants to have a prize to send people into space. And I went, oh, wow, that's interesting. So I left, finished that story for GQ, and the next thing I did was a big X Prize story. And it was one of the... It announced the X Prize, but it was one of the... It was the first big story about the prize that really looked at the teams and actually really kind of took it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and Peter and I just got to know each other, and we got along really, really well, and he liked my writing, and we, we kept in touch. I did 
I did a lot of XPRIZE stories over the years for a lot of different publications, and we worked on a couple other projects together. And then, um, essentially, by the t when the XPRIZE went from space to uh, the betterment of mankind, when he made that transition, Peter and I kind of lost touch with each other. He, was, he became very close friends with Dejer Molnar as well. Um, I introduced them, and they ended up being really good friends. Um, so I kept tabs on Peter through Dejer, and I always knew what was going on. But we just we hadn't talked, and I kind of just tell you the story of how abundance happened because th this is basically where we are. Um, I had moved out here, started a dog sanctuary, and was working a lot with animals. I just finished uh, my last uh, my last book, which was called The Small Furry Prayer, which was on the relationship between humans and animals. And I had been spending a lot of time thinking about biodiversity, thinking about how do you protect animals. I'd all I've been a longtime animal geek and a longtime environmental writer, um, and would do these. It was more and more. I was just. It was more and more. It was coming into my life, and and, and I've been really thinking about you know how do you protect ecosystem services? How do you stave off the sixth grade extinction? These were really deep and hard issues for me, and. I started, uh, yeah, I heard something early on about in vitro meat, and I'd always also been very interested in agricultural technologies. All kinds of alternative farming methods were really, those were, those were really interesting things. How do you protect the soil and the land and things like that? I paid a lot of attention to that. And let me back up a bit. The only way to, uh, to actually protect biodiversity, and we know this, and the whole world knows this, is you need migration corridors. You need massive swatches of contiguous wildlands, like the Yellow Soto to Yukon project. So if you need to turn massive swatches of contiguous wildlands over to animals and you need to get the humans off them, the only way to do it is to get the farm animals off the land. You have to move the farms. And the combination of in vitro meat, some of the, uh, the GE technology, I wasn't really paying much attention to this at the time, but in vitro made in vertical farms seemed to me the best possible way. And I was thinking about these things, and I was thinking about a couple other, you know, things along these lines. And as I was, you know, as I was thinking about these things, I was like, okay, well, this is great. I don't have enough weight to write this story. It's I just don't have the environment. I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a PhD in environmental science. You know, this is I can do this as a journalist, but to write this as a book, nobody's going to read it. And I, I wasn't quite sure, you know, how to do that. I was thinking about how to solve that problem. And I had a book I really wanted to write. And as I was thinking about this, the phone rang, and it was Peter. And he said, hey, I've got this book project I, I want to bring you in on. And he told me about it. And it was essentially the other, you know, half of my book. It was, the, it was everything else that kind of surrounded the biodiversity, the animal people, the things I had been thinking about. And Peter just had this bigger frame that my, my ideas slotted right into. And, you know, we fought a little bit. We had massive, huge disagreements, especially about overpopulation. It took him a very, 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 very long time to show me enough data to make me believe that raising basic standards of living could actually impact population in a way. Because that's the other thing. If you care about biodiversity, you need less people. Mm -hmm. It has to be less people, more animals. And you know, that was really important to me. And so that was, those were the two pieces when like, you know, once Peter kind of showed me enough data about biodiversity, all the other stuff, I had read Ray's book. I understood exponentially growing technology. This wasn't, you know, that wasn't new. I'd been a tech writer for a really long time. So these things, these things made sense. And 
Peter slotted a couple other things into place and, you know, we built this frame and I went, you know what, <laughs> this, this could work. And, uh, you know, it kind of went from there. That's, that's a very fascinating story. I especially love the, the part where you argued about all those major points in the book because that's kind of the, the most creative process, I believe. Well, I'll tell you, there's another, there's another side of the story that's just a really fascinating story and I want to, and I want to tell it, um, because it's equally important, um, the other thing that happened, two other things happened uh, that, you know, during those arguments. One is my background, my primarily back background as a science writer is neuroscience and psychology and cognitive psych and behavioral neuroscience and all these things, right? And so as soon as, you know, I had been spending a real long time and I've written a number of books about, you know, how perception shapes reality, how belief shapes reality, how, you know, we basically live in a world of our own creation. You know, there's no there there. And you know, a lot of a lot of people know this, and I started realizing when Peter and I were talking about the good news and is it really are we moving towards about all this kind of stuff. I started simultaneously looking into this became chapter three of the book, but looking into the neuroscience. Okay, why would I if I'm if why do I have a hard time believing Peter? Because some of the things he would say, I would just have an instinctive bad reaction to, and you know, whenever I have a really powerful emotion, you, you look at that, you're like, okay, what, I'm, I'm being given some information here, what's this about? And I started poking at it, and, you know, not only did I, you know, kind of start uncovering Kahneman's cognitive biases, which I knew about, but I started realizing, you know, how much your brain basically blocks out good news. And it was, when I started really looking at the data, it was an astounding amount, and, you know, and in very peculiar ways. One of the things that's uh, what I'm really proud of in the book that's a bit of original thinking is we have psychologists have known for a while that we are what's local optimists. We overestimate our attractiveness, our intelligence, our charisma, our chances of winning the lottery, our chances of not getting fired or cancer, whatever, you know this stuff, right? And it's called the psychological immune system. There's a flip side to the psychological immune system that nobody had really looked at, which is while we're local optimists, we're global pessimists. Meaning, if I ask you, for example, a lot of it has to do with control, but let me, let me give you a really simple example. If I say, get a better grade in math, well, you can imagine hiring a tutor, partying less, you can see how to do it, it makes sense, and you're overconfident because you've got the psychological immune system, right? And you just say, okay, I can do it, I can get a better grade in math. But if I say, I, you know, solve world hunger, what happens is the first thing that you think of is all these starving children that becomes your anchor point, so the anchoring bias kicks in, and it crowds out all other thoughts, and you can't even begin to imagine it. You feel helpless and doomed and pessimistic, even before you've even begun thinking about the problem. So even what I started to realize is just trying to think about these global problems, we had problems with. There were psychological problems with. That was a big breakthrough. That was one of the other things that came together for me along with population. But the third thing, and this is the story I wanted to tell you a little bit ago, is I had gotten hired to investigate small-scale nuclear reactors for an article, for a magazine article. Wow. Um, backyard nukes, as they call them. And this was when they were just started to come out, and a lot, of the, a lot of the neat stuff that's going on with these technologies was going on in New Mexico, where I am. Now, I'm a longtime environmental writer. I've got lots of connections in the environmental movements. And, you know, it's nukes. And I'm a good liberal, so I instantly hate nukes. And I, like, oh, these techn this technology's gonna suck. And, you know, I <laughs> know it. And I go out and I call my environmental friends. And sure enough, I mean, in the way, these are top experts. Guys, they tell you what you want to hear. 
Well, they tell me the, sa the same thing. They tell me all about the technology, all of it. And, you know, and I'm convinced we have a real problem. And I'm all set to write this article and I have to fact check something. And I can't find a source at Los Alamos. And I end up calling a, a retired Argonne National Laboratory guy. And I don't even tell him anything about small scale nuclear reactors or my story. I just ask him a question. And he gives me an answer. And I realize as he's giving me this answer that if he's telling the truth, everything I just heard from the world's leading experts on nukes, the guys who were going on television talking about why nukes are bad, was a lie. And I didn't think these guys were lying intentionally, but if this was true, everything else I've been told was crap. And I went, holy shit, I got to look into this. And, you know, did and quickly realized very simply that every single one of the experts I knew on nuclear power had stopped learning at the China Syndrome. When Three Mile Island melted down, they, that was as far as the technology had gotten in their mind, and they had never paid attention after that. So they knew nothing about Generation 4 technology at all. And when I, what I was learning about Generation 4 technology was astounding, and it, it, it you know, really blew my mind. So I wrote, a, I wrote a big story about it that's called Meltdown or Motherload. And uh, I remember I got a note from Stuart Brand. Um, <laughs> you know, a note thanking me and telling me that, you know, I got it right. And, you know, this was before he published his book and I didn't, you know, I didn't even, and Stuart had been a longtime hero of mine. Yeah. So to get a note from Stuart telling me that like, you know, my work on nuclear power was important and I was right. I, you know, I was like, okay, what else, you know, technologically has been dismissed, you know, that I should pay attention to. So all these three things came together right when Peter and I, you know, we're working on abundance. Um, and I also had, you know, once you kind of look at fourth generation nuclear power, global warming, climate, some of these really massive intractable problems, you know, seem a little more solvable because it's such a powerful technology and there are a number of versions of it and it's here today and, you know, mm -hmm. can't be scaled up type of thing. This was very, you know, this was very high opening. <laughs> And I presume all of this happened before the Fukushima accident. It did. And I mean, by the way, Fukushima, if they would have had Generation 4 technology, wouldn't have happened, right? Generation 4 technology, I don't know what you know about it, but it can't melt down. The laws of physics prohibit it from being able to melt down, right? You can't, it can't sustain a reaction as it gets that hot, so it shuts itself down. And by the way, the reason we know this works is in Idaho, they ran the experiment. They duplicated everything that happened on Three Mile Island with this technology. They literally unplugged the reactor from the wall, um, and it shut itself off. Right? We've done this in tests. We know it works. Um, and you know, so I want to. I, I wrote some additional stuff after that happened in Japan, because um, it was the worst. I mean, it was the worst kind of disaster at the worst time. Though I do think, um, and I've been pretty frustrated with the Obama administration. You know, they've supported nuclear power, great, but they're supporting generation two, generation three nuclear power, which is the stupidest thing yeah. I can possibly imagine. You know, so I'm on a certain level, I'm hoping that what happened in Japan was a wake-up call, that it's time to really pay attention to Gen 4 and just leave these outdated technologies alone. Just to make sure, because I'm not an expert in the field at all, but I've seen a couple of documentaries recently. Is generation four the, the thorium-based reactors? Well, there's a couple of different kinds there's traveling wave reactors. Thorium is one of yeah. the Generation 4 technologies. Thor and thorium is a usually, usually interesting technology. Yeah. Um, 
And it was it came about- out, mostly it came out of Oak Ridge, Argon, you know, developed a slightly different technology, but you know, mm-hmm. you know, those are the, those are the two kind of core things. And I like the fact that they're competing and, you know, and Nathan Maribel's traveling wave reactor is kind of a third variation in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I like the competition. I think the best technology is going to start to emerge. I like that. I'd like us to start working on it here in America. They're, I mean, they're certainly doing interesting things. Starting to Bill Gates is a huge supporter there. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Nathan Maribel got involved, um, you know, there are a lot of people who think he's one of the smartest people in the world. And mm-hmm. fantastic. But let's get back on topic here, which is, of course, your book Abundance. So. Before we dive into the book, let me challenge you and by setting up a context and you tell me where I'm wrong. And, and that, that's the context that I often have to um, address myself. So let's see. I mean, turn on the TV. Everywhere you look around, people dying, environmental disasters, wars of increasing. Uh, I mean, the Middle East is exploding, environmental degradation, global warming, uh, the polar caps are melting at a faster pace than ever. I think this summer we had the biggest ever um, uh, melting in the Northwest Passage, north of Canada. Um, and of course, the world is ending at the end of 2012. So, I mean, everything, everywhere you look around, people are losing their pensions, their 401ks, or uh, their livelihoods, they're, they're getting made, re- they're made redundant by machines or by outsourcing the production in China and so on. How in the world can we say that there's an abundance when we see that all over the place around us on news, on the internet and on TV, on radio, everywhere? Okay, so there's two different answers I'm going to give you. And thank you for asking that question, actually. It's a great question. The first thing is, um, I just want to talk about jobs in the economy for a second. I'm a writer, I'm a magazine journalist, primarily. This is a industry that is supported almost entirely, you know, by advertising, which is no longer exists, and publishing. I've had to reinvent my career literally three times in the past decade, three different ways, to feed my family. So, you know, in 2007, I made less money than I made when I was 22 years old. After, you know, like literally, you know what I mean? I have, mm-hmm. I, this is, this is not a crisis that I am unaffected by. I, mm-hmm. um, and by the way, the flip side is I run a dog sanctuary. The vast majority of animals in my care came from somebody who lost their home, got thrown out of it and couldn't keep their animal. And now, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm on the front lines of that as well. So I see that stuff. And, you know, very, all, all the crises you're, you're talking about. The first thing I want to say is, we're not dismissing them. We're making two points. The first point is, yes, there is a tremendous amount of bad news. We face grand, grand, grand challenges right now. Um, are they worse today than I, they ever have been before in history? I have no way to answer that question. I don't, think, I don't think there is a way. I think what is true is that we are way more aware of them because of you know, the internet, because of you know, 500 channels of cable, et cetera, et cetera. So we're certainly more overwhelmed by them mm-hmm. than we ever have before. I don't, worse or better, we make a number of points. First off, by almost any quality of life metric you choose, life now 
is significantly, significantly, massively better than it was 100 years ago in shocking, shocking, shocking ways. Mm -hmm. And in ways that is the economy in tatters, yes. But are groceries 13 times cheaper than they were 150 years ago? Yes. You know, human lifespan has increased by, uh, or increased by 100% in the past century. Child mortality has dropped by 90, 90%, maternal mortality by 99%. The vast majority in America of the poorest of the poor have running water, flush toilets, air conditioning, a car, a television. These are luxuries that, you know, the richest of the rich couldn't even have dreamed of 100 years ago. That said, abundance is not about a world of abundance today. Um, what we are saying in the book is there are four emerging forces right now that should allow us to significantly raise global standards of living over the next two to three decades. That's what abundance means. Four emerging forces that are putting so much power in the hands of individuals that we can triumph over these challenges and meet and exceed the basic needs of every man, woman, and child on Earth. Basic needs. We're talking about food, water, some degree of personal freedom, access to health care, access to education, that, those shelter, those kinds of things. We're not talking about Trump Towers, Mercedes-Benz. What we're talking about is getting the chance to live a life of possibility, giving everybody on Earth a chance to try to make something great of themselves. You know, that's what we're talking about here. And the, the, other, the other point, the other thing that I, I, I want to talk about um, it's been a lot of global warming talk lately um, for very, very good reason. Um, crisis is very, very, very significant. But most of the technologies and, you know, and, the, and the forces that we discuss in abundance provide some of our best, our best chances against global warming. This is a giant crisis and we have to you know, rally together. But the technologies that are at our disposal are increasingly powerful. And, you know, and I do believe we can solve it. Okay, so let me grab a couple of points of what you just said here um, and see where that takes us. So first of all, you said that uh, our standards of living have increased substantially for the last uh, 100 years. And for example, the grocery bills have uh, decreased by a factor of 13. But what if somebody tells you, well, for the last 20 or 30 years, say from the late 70s or 80s up until now, I feel that all my bills have gotten up. I feel that I'm making less money than ever before, and I feel that my kids are going to have a lower standard of living than my parents or me. Well, the thing that the thing that you're missing on this let's let's just pick a let's pick healthcare, right? This is a healthcare is a great way to start, and I want I just want to talk about. Um, some of the technologies and how they're working. And I, and I really kind of want to start with uh, the Qualcomm X Prize, the Tricorder X Prize, which is a great, a great way to start. So as most people know, Watson was IBM's computer that played on Jeopardy, right? So after uh, Watson beat Jeopardy, the great advantage of Watson is understood natural language, right? Massive brain access to all kinds of other materials, but understands natural language. What did they do with Watson after Jeopardy? They sent Watson to medical school, right? They're, they're basically trying to build a board-certified doctor, AI. That AI is going to get put into the cloud. 
when you combine a cloud-based diagnostic AI with the tricorder technology, which basically takes spit, blood, or urine and analyzes it. You know, it's a cell phone device that analyzes, you know, your spit, blood, or urine for, you know, a whole host of things, gets hooked up into the cloud, attached to Watson, and suddenly your cell phone is your doctor. That is a massive, massive, massive quality of life breakthrough. It's going to significantly drop the cost of healthcare, and it's going to be available to anybody with a cell phone, which are technologies that are already, right, 70% cell phone penetration by the end of 2013. Globally, it'll be over 80% by 2020. These are huge numbers, right? And they're going to be smartphones, and they're going to have these technologies developing. So, yes, our you know, are the machines taking our jobs? <laughs> At a certain level, the machines are taking our jobs. And Peter and I don't deny this. There is an appendix in abundance about, you know, the dangers of exponential technologies, and there's a chapter on jobs. And it is a big, big issue and exceptionally painful right now because we're in the trend, we're moving from a materials-based economy to an information economy. Now, there's huge advantages in an information economy. In a materials-based economy, and I'm going to quote Dean Kamen here, Materials-based economy, if you got a hunk of, of gold and I got a watch and we trade, then you got a watch and I got a hunk of gold and it's zero sum. We each got one thing. But if you got an idea and I got an idea and we trade, we each have two ideas. It's non-zero. So in an information-based economy, first of all, you, you, you need less materials to, to make a living and everybody can win. We're moving in that direction slowly, painfully, not very, you know, not very elegantly at all. And how long, you know, is this transition going to take? I have no idea. I don't think anybody has any idea. And I think it, it can be, you know, far more painful along the way. It, it is, you know, it's, there's some scary stuff out there. That said, you know, the same growth curve that I just laid out for healthcare, education also built on the backs of AI, you know, is moving in these same direction. We're getting, you know, we're getting amplification and water technology and food technology. And one of the things that a lot of people also miss is the challenges that we look at right now are scary. And one of the reasons they're scary is because they're interlocked, right? Water impacts health, it impacts education or employment, blah, blah, blah. And they're all tightly nestled. The flip side is so are the solutions. That's how Peter convinced me about population. He didn't show me data about population. He showed me data about what happened in Morocco when babies stopped dying from dirty water and population numbers dropped. So these are, you know, really, really intractable seeming problems like overpopulation. Oh, my God, what do you do? You give people clean water. And we know how to do that. Dean came in slingshot technology, which is already, you know, in field trials with Coca-Cola doing really well, I might add. I just had a conversation with somebody at DECA about this last week. Um, does a lot of really, you know, solves a big chunk of the global water crisis. This one technology. And, you know, that in turn is going to solve a lot of these other crises. So the same reason we're terrified works to our benefit. The domino effect, you know, happens in the solutions as well. That's fantastic. So perhaps you can uh, just uh, repeat and elaborate a little more on those four factors that you think are going to bring about that abundance that you refer to in the book. So the, the four forces, the forces that we, are, we believe are driving us, um, the first of those is, is exponentially growing technology, right? And over the past, you know, kind of since Moore's law wasn't actually the first 
exponential technology, but since Moore's law has been discovered, people have figured out that most information-based technologies, if not all, quickly strap themselves to exponential growth curves, right? Exponential growth curves are massive. They're deceptive also, but they're very, very, very explosive. And it's the reason that, you know, a supercomputer that filled a room and cost $8 million in the 70s now sits in your pocket and costs less than 200 right? Same change, you know, is hitting uh, nanotechnology, AI, robotics, sensors, networks, on and on and on. So there's a lot of these technologies are going exponential right now, and that puts a tremendous amount of power into the hands of the individuals, which leads us to our second force, which is the newfound power of the DIY innovator. Today, for the first time ever, small groups of dedicated people can do what governments and large corporations used to do. And we saw this, I mean, the most clear example was somebody like Bert Rattan winning the X Prize. Here's a guy who sent a ship into space with 36, gri 36 guys and you know, $20 million. Still a lot of money, a lot of funding, but let's, Mark, let's look at synthetic biology. This was Bert Rattan 10 years ago. Synthetic biology, as of 2007, you had kids, high school and college students in the iGEM competition who are producing real-world results, actual real vaccines that could be used against ulcers in the real world, things like that. So now suddenly, you know, it went from, in one, less than a generation, it goes from guys like Bert Rattan taking on space rights with millions of dollars to guys in their garages fighting, you know, major ailments with, with almost no money. So the DIY innovator and the newfound power that was our second force. Mm -hmm. The third force we're calling the techno-philanthropists. And it's the whole new breed of, you know, philanthropists. These are guys who don't want to build buildings in their honor. They want to take on grand challenges. You've got the most obvious examples, Bill Gates fighting malaria, you know, the Omidars going for free, fighting for freedom or put electricity into the third world. Jeff Skoll is crusading against pandemics and fighting nuclear proliferation. These are only the most, you know, obvious examples. But this is a group of people who made more money, you know, in a shorter time than ever before. They reinvented industries before the age of 35. And now they're, you know, they're going after global grand challenges and they're not just writing checks. You know, we were, we talked to a lot of people who talk about, you know, what a difference it made when Bill Gates decides to go into, he can have a meeting with a, with a leader of a foreign country and he can go in there with a team and bring in the WHO and things like that. That's astounding. So the newfound power of the techno-philanthropists, who, by the way, seem really, really, really keen through social entrepreneurship in backing the DIY innovator. And our, our fourth force, which is, is, is probably the force we're most interested in, we're calling the rising billion, right? These are the, these are the four billion people at the bottom of the pyramid, the poorest of the poor, the people who you know, are living on less than $2 a day, but they're suddenly coming online. Two things are happening. One, in the past 15 years, a lot of companies have started to figure out how to do business at the bottom of the pyramid, right? There's been a giant revolution at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of how to do business there. People are becoming very, very successful. Secondly, everybody's getting phones. So they're coming online. So now there's these new business, co-creative business models with the, with the poorest of the poor at the same time that the poorest of the poor are being interconnected. They're joining the global conversation for the very first time. So, Stephen, abundance sounds absolutely fascinating, but let me bring a question that one of my viewers and listeners here on Singularity Weblog uh, posed and see what you think about it. So, the gentleman's uh, uh, online handle is LD, and he says the following. I agree with the basic idea 
about abundance, but the sad fact is that we will not be able to create this better future society while we're living in the monetary system. Monetary system can only function when there is, when there is no abundance. In other words, only in a situation of scarcity. It is absurd, but true. Abundance creates an economic crisis in the monetary system, and the only way of the system to start functioning properly again is to create scarcity. So, what, are you, what is your comment to, to that kind of a question? My comment, and so I, I, and I will openly admit there are a handful of topics, and this is right in the middle of it, that we chose not to deal with in abundance. That, uh, and even in the appendixes, that, you know, we're, it was right there. But he is right, by the way, everything we're talking about pushes very hard on traditional capitalism. Now, I would urge our LD to read a book called The Origin of Wealth, which is essentially an introduction to complexity economics. Traditional economics, as he points out, is based on the scarcity model. And it's, I mean, it's based on a lot of things, by the way, that are no longer true. It's based on the rational actor theory as well, right? Exactly, yeah. Economics is well aware of the fact that, you know, they basically created a model that they based on physics and only half the laws of thermodynamics have been invented. And that's the, that's the problem you have right there. Right. But I mean, where, uh, and I, I think a lot of people are, you know, a lot of people are looking at this and I think some, some people, I mean, I've got friends who are, you know, experimenting with alternate currencies and there's questions about bitcoins and there's a whole interesting future. Um, and I do agree with you. I don't think it's a tear down the entire system. Um, I do think, you know, on a certain on a certain sense, I guess perhaps we were talking about something about a steady state economy on the bottom with a capitalistic free market economy built on top of it. I don't know if Peter would agree with me on that, but I think, you know, some something like that model maybe what we're looking at. Um, but it is definitely, you know, it it is a. I don't agree. I mean, his comment is. I think historically false. I don't mean to be rude here, but if, you know, what he was saying is true, well, we've made astounding advances in the past century on the backs of, you know, faulty capitalism, as he describes it, right? And we've reduced a significant, I'm not saying there aren't billions of people living in backbreaking poverty today, but we've done, we've dented it. You know, poverty has been reduced more in the past 50 years than the previous 500 across the boards, um, and we've done this using capitalism. So, you know, history itself says, hey, wait a minute, there's more to this story than, than we understand. I think complexity economics is a step in the right direction. I think really smart people are starting to think about this problem. This is a very new problem, right? Yeah. This whole idea that abundance is, I mean, you would have, 10 years ago, this is nonsense. This is science fiction. Right. It's only because of what exponential technology has done in the past decade that we're having this conversation. So these are very, very, very new problems that we're confronting for the very first time. So while I'm not dismissing any of the problems, I am dismissing the bleakness of the outcome and, you know, just trying to wedge open the possibility space for, for something that we can't see coming. Yeah, because to, to, to support my viewer, uh, my commentary here for a little bit, I have to say, um, I think his question is going a little bit beyond the historical uh, context here, but it's more future-oriented. And I'll give you a couple examples of my own personal life. 
Um, I grew up in Bulgaria uh, behind the Iron Curtain for the first 13 or 14 uh, years of my life uh, in communist Bulgaria. And after communism collapsed, we had hyperinflation. But what hyperinflation meant was um, that when I was in the army, uh, uh, I was a sergeant and I was getting paid 30 cents per month. But at the same time, we were uh, living in an abundance of money. So one month I got paid 400 bucks. The other month I got paid 800. Next month I got paid 1500, 2000, 3000, 4000, 5000, which is great. Problem is that 5000 of our monetary units was equal to $1. So in a situation in which you have an abundance of something, it becomes meaningless to the point of it loses any value. And not only that, but the whole capitalistic system, as you pointed out, it's based in economics, it's based on scarcity, it's based on the most efficient uh, allocation of scarce resources. Sure. So, and the idea is that the market is the most efficient mechanism that we know of so far, which allocates those scarce resources. But then what happens when we have abundance? Isn't, and that's, uh, I think, the, the real key here is that I think just like, you know, uh, all the other previous economic systems had their time and place in history and had to go, perhaps we're just having a glimpse into the sort of the beginning of the end of capitalism. I don't know. I, I mean, I think, I mean, the exact same, we can have this exact same discussion about kind of, you know, democracy, nation-state-based democracy as we know it. I mean, right, you know, I, I always make this joke, but if you had to go to war tomorrow and you can pick as your ally Microsoft or Malaysia, you're going to take Microsoft. Right? <laughs> if I give you six months to prepare for war, you'd much rather go to war with Microsoft getting your back than Malaysia. You've got companies so much larger than nation states at this point. You know, I, I think all of these systems are under you know, significant duress, but I don't think that leads to disaster. It seems to lead to change, but I... You know, I like our chances. I like what's going on. I find it really interesting. And, you know, I don't, it's really a question of how much, you know, this is another, by the way, cognitive bias that we call loss aversion, right? It's loss aversion, what keeps you stuck in ruts. You hold on to what you have for fear of change. And it's a very, very strong bias. I, I you know, in this particular case, I don't suffer from it. You know, I, I like where we're going even though it is going to be radically different from today, yeah. But the other flip side, let me, <coughs> we're saying abundance. What we're really talking about, right, is basic necessities, providing basic necessities. So let's, right now, um, air is free. We don't, you know, it's not regulated, and it hasn't fallen apart. Is, it, is everything going to fall apart suddenly if, you know, another basic necessity, like water, you know, is provided for free? I just... I don't see the disaster. We're not talking about handing out free money. We're talking about, you know, very affordable, low-cost energy, very low, affordable, low, I mean, it, things get interesting from there, right? You provide super cheap energy, and then suddenly a lot of things do become very, very abundant. But we're, we're moving in this direction anyways. Information and communication are, you know, which we're treasured valued commodity you know think about how the whole traditional education system was was built right you have to memorize as much information as you, as you can cram into your head and that's how we're going to judge your intelligence well all that's gone it's gone in the past 15 years 
10 years. That doesn't be smart. People haven't, you know, are suddenly not undervalued and not, you know, being employed because the internet gives us all the facts on demand. I don't see the correlations. I think there's too many moving parts mm -hmm. to rush to judgment. I see. Well, Stephen, that's a fascinating topic, but I know your time is very valuable. So I'd have to bring our interview to a close here with the final two questions. So first of all, where can our viewers and listeners go and find more information about you and your work? My website, www.stephencotler.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. Thank you. And I'll definitely also post the link. But uh, the, the final and perhaps most important question of my uh, interviews traditionally is this. Is there a single point or a single most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? Like, I'm going to leave you with, you know, what is to Peter and me the most important message in abundance, which is what we're really talking about is massive amounts of personal empowerment. And we don't have to wait around anymore for other people to solve our problems. We can take matters into our own hands, solve them all ourselves. We have the most astounding cooperative tools ever invented in history at our disposal. Massively powerful technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper every day. And, you know, this is our fight. It's our future. And, you know, you can sit passively by and let it happen to you and complain. Get off the couch and do something. You, right now, I think everybody, you know, when you were a little kid, I, I, I distinctly remember there was a period of time I wanted to be Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi or, you know, Jesus Christ. But that was the level of impact. And it got beaten out of me like it got beaten out of everybody else who really wanted to change the world. But one of the things that, you know, my time writing this book, my time around Singularity University, you know, my time in this world has really, you know, taught me. Because suddenly there's, it's not just me, it's a lot of other people that I'm meeting who wanted to be Gandhi, Luther, Martin Luther King, Jesus, take your pick. Um, and suddenly they've rediscovered it because suddenly these tools are available to everybody. And, you know, that's exciting. This is, it, this is really happening. I don't think, you know, I, I've always felt there's nothing. If I can learn, learn it, somebody else can. I don't think there's anything all that special about me. If I can move in this direction, other people can that's me the message. Stephen, Get off the couch, change the world. Say that again? Get off the couch, change the world. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Stephen Cutler, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Really fun. Thank you. Yeah.